Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. For all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, we've got the passion. You know, as, as we're here today, um, the primary archery season, the rut have come and gone, and we're in early December. So depending where you, you live, what state you live in, you might have gun season now, you might have your late archery season kicking off, but it's no doubt a challenging time to deer hunt. Well, I'm super excited. We have uh, an incredible bow hunter joining us today. Uh, he hunts in a state that sees a lot of hunting pressure, has a two buck limit. Um, no types of antler restrictions, and he is sort of the godfather of saddle hunting. John Eberhardt, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm not enjoying sitting around not hunting, but it's gun season here, and I don't gun hunt, and I'm waiting to go out of state in, uh, probably in December. I think I'm, I was talking to a state park ranger the other yesterday, actually, and I think I'm going to go to Illinois in, in December. Yeah, it's you. You live in in Michigan, where where hunting pressure is pretty substantial. I live in Pennsylvania, where we have a lot of hunting pressure. Probably the number one and number two states as far as archery hunting pressure. So you see that pressure on deer from um, beginning of you know the season, whether it starts in September, or October, right through. And um, you know, you started saddle hunting way before there was something really called saddle hunting. You've been doing it for a few decades already. So, you know, I think a great way to jump into this before we talk about late season tactics is how did you get started in saddle hunting? What, you know, what made you want to look at that option to become a more mobile bow hunter? Uh, 1981, I started bow hunting in 65 when I was just a young teenager. And in 1981, I walked into a sporting goods store and they had this poly bag, you know, everything back then was poly bag they didn't have clam packs and it had a bunch of seat belt fabric in it and and it had a picture of a guy on the header card where he was actually sitting hunting in a harness type system facing the tree kind of like you'd see a consumer's power guy up on a lineman pole uh -huh. you know fixing fixing electric electric electrical stuff and uh and it showed that he could move 360 around the tree he get on every tree he ever prepped in the forever out of this one saddle it was always with him it didn't make noise it was made out of fabric it weighed less than two pounds um you know and it it just hit me you know i was like man this looks really cool nobody in the store knew what it was about this was in 1981 and nobody knew anything about what this product was and it had just came out it's called the uh, anderson tree sling actually at the time so i bought it and it was different um, but I did a lot of modifications on it and, mm -hmm. uh, man, once I learned how to use it correctly, it opened up a plethora of trees. Cause I could hunt basically any type of tree, big trees, skinny trees, leaning trees, uh, trees with branches didn't make any difference. I always had the saddle with me. I hunt a lot of, ton of public land, so I didn't have to worry about stands getting stolen. I didn't have to buy multiple stands. I could shoot 360 around any tree. I could hide behind the trunk as deer were going by if I didn't want to shoot them, or if I'm hunting at a destination location like in a white oak or or a primary scrape area or something. I would I could set up on the 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree, 
and then just slide to the side when I wanted to take my shot. So, you know, when you're hunting at a destination location, there may be multiple deer there for, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes eating or, or whatever, working scrapes, working a scrape or what, uh, whatever the case may be. And you are 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree. So when they're feeding, you know, they're lifting their heads up and chewing and their ears are moving and they're looking around. And it, and as you well know, in the states, heavily pressured areas and states, you know, deer tend to look for hunters in trees. So, you know, by being 180 degrees hidden on the backside of a tree, I never got kicked. When I hunted out of tree stands, I had to somewhat hunt, set the stand off to the side yeah, so I could take a shot to the destination location. So I was much more apt to get picked, especially once the foliage was down. So uh, it just gave me a ton more advantages, and it it upped my kill percentage immensely. You know, and, and a lot of people know you, so this will not come as a surprise. But for those who aren't familiar with John, John's taken, I think, 33 different archery bucks that are listed uh, in his state's record books. And I think you've taken like 20 Pope and Young bucks from from other states. Um, so I it's it's. Uh, over 50, 50 deer that you've taken. Uh, and I think the vast majority, you know, 45, 48 of them have been uh, out of a saddle. So you've been doing this a long time. And, you know, and talking about that, I think a great question is, um, does it surprise you now that saddle hunting has gained so much momentum? Um, are you just surprised maybe that it took so long considering you've been doing it for so long? I am surprised it took so long, but I'm very gratified because the books I wrote, I've written three Ball hunting books. And in each book, I had a either a chapter or a pretty good part of a chapter dedicated to saddle hunting. Um, so just about all of the guys that started these new saddle companies since 2018, 2018 is when it really took off. You know, they had read my books, they've been saddle hunting since the early 2000s. So that was very gratifying. But yeah, I, you know, Writing books, a lot of bow hunters don't read. So, uh, you know, that message maybe didn't get out there, even though the books sold very, very well. Um, but then when social media took off and a lot of these guys got on social media and started started talking saddle hunting, it just, it just blew up. So I, yeah, so I understood the book versus social media is a totally different realm. Yeah, but the great thing is you're sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your content on social media. You have a YouTube channel that you, you put stuff on uh you you've even written a couple pieces for our saddle hunting publication which came out just this year so you're trying to share with all audiences and that's a great thing you you've amassed this knowledge from you know on the ground hands-on hunting and successes and failures and now you're trying to share it so others can experience the same thing and i think that's so awesome and can i can i mention one thing absolutely um, uh the 30 35 bucks in michigan in the book and uh and 20 from out of state, open young bucks. And one thing that I'm really proud of, because there's a lot of guys that have taken a lot of bucks, you know, that are in the record books or our record book class, they just didn't enter them. Uh, but what I'm most proud of is 100% of my hunting since I started bow hunting has been either on public land or knock on doors for free commercial properties. So I'm not hunting any managed properties, never paid a dime to hunt any place, never hunted over a food plot. Never hunted in a box blind. Uh, everything has been on public and three permission properties only, no matter where I've hunted or all the deer I've taken. 
So, for example, in your state, that would be wildlife management areas, state forest, and maybe I think Michigan has a, a some type of public access program as well. Michigan has a lot of public land, even even in the southern part of the state where there's a lot of big cities. There's lots of parcels of public land. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. And so you add that extra layer of um, complexity in there and making it challenging. Now, you know, we're at a time of the year here where the gun seasons have have come in. Uh, archery season, the prime archery time for most guys is is already over with the rut coming and going. So let, let's focus a little bit on this time of the year, because you're probably hunting at one of the most difficult times of the year, especially with the bow. So, for example, deer numbers are at their lowest point of the year. Um, you have uh, deer being pushed around for weeks and weeks, depending on the state's gun season. Um, there's no longer any leaves on the tree or most of the leaves are gone. You have a lot of challenges. So talk about, let's just start uh, with a bigger view. Talk about what your approach is to bow hunting in the late season. What are you looking for? What types of scenarios and situations? Well, first off, there's there's quite a few factors that create a realistic opportunity for taking mature buck during the late season, you know, after gun season and muzzleloader season. Uh, you have to take into account the amount and type of hunting pressure the property received. Does the property have a known defined bedding area on it? Are there natural food sources on the property or on a bordering property that a deer may leave your property and go to, you know, transition to a bordering or vice versa? Um, the type of transition security cover uh, required for a mature buck to leave a bedding area and transition through security cover to a known natural food location. You have to have that. Uh, your ability to dress for the weather is a very critical aspect of it. And even the types of trees you have available to hunt uh, add to a realistic opportunity. You know, you've got to have trees that are big enough that you can get up high enough because the foliage is down. You've got to be up high enough to be out of their peripheral vision when they're transitioning or if they're coming in and you're near an actual feeding area, you have to be up out of their uh, uh, peripheral vision. And all of those things have to, have to play out pretty well to have a realistic opportunity at possibly taking a late season buck because uh, it's not easy. And, and dressing, dressing it up for late season hunting is an art in itself because back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the early 90s, uh, we just didn't have the clothing that we have nowadays. Uh, back then, we didn't have anything that was windproof unless it had a PVC liner, which was noisy. Uh, now we have nice fleece exteriors. We have cremaloft insulation. We have polyurethane membranes that are relatively quiet when they're underneath a heavier fleece exterior to mask the noise of the polyurethane membrane. Uh, we have insulate insulation. Um, we have fleece interiors. There's just a lot more clothing now to make it easier to hunt in cold weather. We also heated vests, uh, merino wool base garments, which did not exist back then. They had regular wool, which hitched, but merino wool uh, base garments didn't exist. Um, and air-activated warmers, you know, hand, toe, and body warmers. Um, there's just a lot, a lot of uh, things incorporated in dressing, you know, because I've hunted in weather where wind chills were 35 below zero. Do you have a and couple... 
favorite pieces of equipment that you uh, is like apparel that you just can't go without that they're a staple in your arsenal in the late season? Uh, well, I'm a big satellite guy. I pay zero yep. attention to production. Absolutely zero since 1997. When I properly on my own or how to properly care for, store, and use it. So everything I wear on my exterior uh, is is Scentlock. Mm-hmm. So Scentlock made what they call the uh, hydrotherm suit. And the first two years they made it, it had a pretty heavy Primaloft insulation. And it was also windproof. It had a polyurethane membrane under the skin of the exterior. So that is when it's bitter, bitter cold, that's my go-to suit. But then I designed a suit for Scentlock last year, and it's a late season suit, and it's called the uh, uh, Signature Saddle Hunter suit. And it's got 180 grams of fleece exterior, 180 grams of fleece interior. It's, it's got a polyurethane uh, windproof membrane. Uh, it's, it's lined with 100. It's got 100 grams of insulate insulation in the body, in the, you know, the core body of the suit and in the hip area of the pants. And then it's got 80 grams of insulate in the arms and the legs. Um, so that is my primary go-to suit. It's pretty rare that I have to wear the hydrotherm. You know, mm-hmm. it's got to be below 10 degrees before I put that hydrotherm on. Yeah. And uh, now I should ask you, do you do you hunt with gloves? Everybody has a different thing. I actually don't like gloves, but if it's really cold, I'll wear them. What's your thoughts on hunting with gloves? Uh, I actually hate gloves. I... Cellock <laughs> uh, makes lightweight gloves. I always wear lightweight gloves. So I designed the saddle hunter suit yep. so that the pockets, when you're sitting in a saddle, the pockets on your jacket are up higher. You know, because with a saddle, if you have regular slash pockets on a normal jacket, your saddle kind of covers the pockets up so you don't have access to them. So I designed the pockets a little higher on the jacket and they're fleece line. And also the pockets, there's leg pockets on your top of your thighs on each leg and they're fleece lined as well. So they're kind of like hand warm pockets. So I wear thin gloves, but I keep them in pockets or a hand warm one. It's like the the most minute conversation, but it's so important because when it's time to shoot, you need those hands and fingers ready to go. And, you know, Huntworth makes some clothing now where they have the same kind of pockets. Like it's like for years, manufacturers didn't think about the pockets. Now they're becoming more front and center and they have something where you put in and for it has to get pretty cold for your hands to be bothered in those pockets. And that's so important when you when you're bow hunting, especially in the late season, you want to be nimble and have dexterity in those fingers. So that's why I wanted to ask you about that, because because there's definitely people that don't mind gloves. And then there's people that absolutely can't stand them. Now, when when you're climbing, you mentioned this also as you were hand, I also use hand. I throw that in too. I also use air activated hand warmers in each pocket. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's an important thing. You know, you you want to make sure, and obviously, you want to make sure you have the right boot set up and uh, stay comfortable. And um, you hope most guys will wear a nice, warm, comfortable cap, a knit cap or fleece cap in the winter because that's essential to keep that body heated. But uh, no. you were you were talking about climbing. And, you know, not having the leaves around you in the backdrop and you want to make sure you have a tree big enough. How much higher do you climb in the late season? Do you go higher in the late season? Like what's your range that you'll climb in the late season versus earlier when that when the leaves are on the trees? If it's a big diameter tree, like 30 inches in diameter plus, uh, I don't get quite as high. It depends on where I'm at. 
if I'm in a transition zone where deer are physically moving from point A to point B, you know, I may not get quite as high because the deer are moving past. When I'm at a destination location where deer are going to be standing around and looking around and eating or whatever the case may be, uh, I'm rarely below 25 feet to my feet. Rarely below that because I don't want to get picked. Because when there's multiple deer at a feeding location, um, you know, a lot of times the deer move around. And, you know, you're trying to stay 180 degrees behind the tree, but sometimes they move to the side a little bit where your part of your body is going to be exposed. So I want to be up out of their peripheral vision where I don't get picked. I'm not worried about ever getting, getting winded. I'm always worried about getting picked. And yeah, with the foliage and down, you've got to get up there. Or if you're in a conifer tree, obviously, I can lower because I've got that ground cover with, with the needles of the tree. Absolutely. Now, do you ever... Just curious, do you ever do any kind of ground hunting from either from blinds or just sitting in the ground with a makeshift blind? Or are you almost always exclusively up in the trees? Late season, I'm always in a tree. During the regular season, yes, I will be hunting the ground occasionally if the situation calls for it. But I prefer to be in a tree. Now, what's your approach to trail cams? Do you do a lot of trail cam work? Do you, do you run them um, throughout the season? Um, how do you rely on them in the late season if you do? I've got a couple of private parcels in the regular season that I put cell cams on, but I rarely use cameras on public because they get stolen. Uh, that's just, you know, when you're in a pressured public land states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, stuff gets stolen. That's just the way it is. Um, so I do use cell cams and I will use them occasionally in the late season, but not typically. Typically in the late season, I, I usually take my first day if I'm going out of state and I will scout and I'll set up a couple locations, but I usually don't use cell cameras because a lot of the places I hunt, there's no service. <laughs> so they're usually remote public land areas, sometimes in hill country. And, you know, like I just hunted in Indiana where we didn't have cell service in a lot of the areas. Now, I think one thing we should touch, touch on, you have a lot of hunting pressure obviously, during the course of the season. And, you know, people might intuitively think, well, if I'm going to hunt in the late season, I got to get pretty deep in the woods. But I want to ask your your thoughts on that. Are, are there some spots that you might hunt where actually you still have some pretty good deer movement and you're not far from the roads in the parking lots? You know, and I'll tell you why, where I live in Pennsylvania, heavily pressured. It's, I found some great hunting over the years not far from the sides of roads. Now, I mean, literally within, like if you're hunting a game land and might have some houses around it, you can legally hunt with a bow in Pennsylvania. You only gotta be 50 yards. You could actually find some incredible hunting depending on the property, pretty close to the perimeter. And so I figured, well, I'll ask you, are you doing all your hunting deep in the woods? Or are you finding different spots work best in different locations? Uh, during the early season prior to snow, what you're saying is 100% true. A lot of times you can get away with hunting very close to parking lots if it's heavy cover and people just don't think about hunting it. I've killed yep. three, three of my biggest bucks in Michigan came within 50 yards of major highways on public land. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I play game and counting cars versus trucks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yards from me, see which one wins, you know, when I count to a hundred, see which one. And usually the cars, Back then, cars beat the trucks by about 60 to 40 on average. Uh, but anyway, um, once there's snow on the ground, I don't like going out of state hunting late season until there's snow on the ground. 
Uh, and what I will typically do is I'll watch the weather forecast. If I plan, like, I'm planning on going to Illinois, and I'm hoping possibly to go to even Ohio after their gun season's over. So I watch the weather reports, and when I see there, if I see they're going to get a snowstorm, you know, where they're going to get four plus inches of snow, that my van is always loaded to go. I hunt out of a minivan, and everything's in it, so I can go on a drop of a dime. And if they get snow, I'll usually, if it's at a big state park, like the one in uh, Illinois is at a state park where they exit the park ranger, I'll call, confirm they got the snow, and then I'll go down there and I'll scout. Because now I'm looking at sign that's left within the last 24 hours. So you can't, once there's snow on the ground during late season, you know, hunters may pass stuff up that they can't see when there's no snow on the ground. When there's tracks on the ground, Everything, even if it's close to a parking lot, is going to get scrutinized if there's anybody hunting there during late season. So uh, I'm usually back in the timber someplace, pretty pretty far off the roads. Yeah. Now, you, as we were talking there, you mentioned your minivan. Do you have a rut rig sort of set up? Is that set up specifically for hunting? 100%. I've hunted out of a minivan for over well, 30 years. You know, so the day I buy it, all the seats come out of the back. So it's wide open in the back and I've got all my uh, airtight totes in there with my scent lock in one tote, my backpack in an airtight tote. All my other undergarments are washed in scent free detergent and kept in their own airtight totes. Um, and I can step right between the seats. I've got my I sled back there, my otter sled. I've got a Versicart pulling deer out. And, and then when I pull a deer out in my cart, I'll dump it into the sled. And then I've also got a little, uh, Thing that goes up onto the back bumper of my my van, and uh, and I can slide the sled up that into the back of the van. So I've got all everything and boots are in there, everything. So I can just step between the seats, sit on one of the airtight hard totes, and just change my clothes. And it's like a mini motel room. I can sleep in there if I want as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. If you're going to go to a public land, and you want to make sure you can get up. And not have to get up at some ridiculous time in the morning or you, if you had a bed in there and you could stay at a wildlife management area and things if you need it. Now, now you do get out of state. You mentioned, I think, Illinois, Ohio. Do you have a you're centrally located there, so you could hit some of the top Midwest states. Do you have a state that you really love to hunt in the late season? And the question is why? We don't, we're not gonna hone in on specific locations, but is there a state you just love late season hunting in? Uh Ohio. I think Indiana is going to become one of them because Indiana is a major sleeper state. Uh, it's, it's, in my opinion, Indiana is way better than Ohio uh, and Illinois. Um, and obviously, last year I shot uh, a good buck in mid-December in Kansas because I went there during the regular season with my two boys and I didn't fill a tag. So I went by, by myself and I shot a buck in a 40-mile-an-hour wind and it was it was below freezing uh, on December sixteenth, I think it was. So, uh, but Kansas and I were a draw state, so it's it's not yeah. like you can just go there. But, uh, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois are are probably my key states, and they're all relatively close. Yeah, they're all excellent, I'm, excellent pickups. I'm going to Indiana for the first time next year ever, so I'm pretty much looking forward to that because I've I've heard as 
up and coming. And when you dive into the Indiana record books, it's pretty impressive. I think they're called the Hoosier State Records. It's pretty impressive. Um, the, you're there producing and talking to the guys out there. There's so many other big bucks being taken that you never hear of because, you know, people just want to keep it confidential. So, it's, yeah, that's exciting. And, um, you know, I should say we were talking earlier about, you know, you um, write articles and you social media and you do video, but you, you have a book coming out next year, uh, if I'm correct. Talk a little bit about that. It's sort of like a DIY guide to deer hunting when, you know, it's another way that people can really um, tap into your wealth of knowledge. But I'm going to let you talk about that. What's the focus of that book? Uh, it's it's going to be called something like The Ultimate Guide to DIY Bow Hunting. And uh, I'm writing it kind of in conjunction with one of the uh, owners of Tethered, which is a saddle wow. company. And I've, I've already written 30 chapters, so um, it's it's well underway. And there's going to be at least 70 very abbreviated kill stories to fit whatever chapter they're in to give that chapter credibility. Um, but I, I love writing. I love helping other funders you know, be more successful. I get testimonials all the time. Every day, I probably get 10 testimonials on average throughout the year. And this time of year, I get more because they're killing deer. But uh, I, I love writing. I love helping other hunters. I love seeing other hunters, you know, start upping their game. And um, so it's it's going to be a general bow hunting book. It's going to have information on everything to do with bow hunting, hill country, ag country, prairie country. Um, scrapes, staging areas, you name it. It's going to be in this book. This is going to be a relatively lengthy book. And the plan is to do it in an audio version, an ebook, and a paper book. Um, and I believe we are going to do the audio ourselves. So, uh, you know, you can add a little more emphasis when you do your own audio because I've done some audio stuff on my YouTube channel. Um, but looking forward to it. Uh, I don't know exactly when it will be released. I'm I'm hoping it's released sometime next summer, just before deer season. Um, but we're well, well, it's at least ninety percent finished already. Well, now we I gotta certainly... just work on it. We we're going to self-publish this. All my other books were published by a professional uh, publishing company that had national uh -huh. market. Well, I certainly can't wait to check that out. Um, you know, and and as we're talking here, it got me to thinking, you know, you've been doing this for 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 so many years, and we're talking about a really specific topic, and that's late season public land bow hunting. For many people, that can actually seem like a daunting task. So I, I like where I live here, I hunt a little public land, but mostly nowadays I hunt private land. Um, and, and my, my situations are hard too, or just different. Like I hunt in my house where it's really hard cause I only have four acres, Well, that, that's a hard scenario in its own right. But so like yeah. if somebody's thinking, man, I'd love maybe for my bucket list, I want to kill a nice buck in the late season on public land. I don't even know where to get started. You talked about the different sort of parameters or the different factors you have to look for. What's your first piece of advice you would give to somebody if they reach out and say, John, I really want to hunt and kill a nice buck on public land in a late season, but it seems a bit overwhelming. Well, I would definitely advise them to go to a state that is known for big bucks. That's uh -huh. number one. Um, I Because it's kind of interesting. I just got back from Indiana on a hunt, and every person that I talked to on this public land, and I talked to at least 10 resident hunters, 
zero of them were targeting anything less than a three and a half year old buck. So, so even in some of these public lands nowadays, um, you know, with so many people targeting bigger bucks, you know, there's two and a half and three and a half year olds pretty regularly on, on this trip. There was 15 of us hunting and seven and seven guys took bucks. Wow. Two and a half years older uh, in a week. That's that's pretty, pretty dang good. But that was during the regular season. Uh, so for late season hunting, I highly recommend researching clothing because you've got to be warm. You have to be warm. That's that's the number one thing is you have to be comfortable in tree for a long period of time. Um, then look for big buck states. Uh, try to wait until after you get a fresh snow. Watch yeah. the weather. Once you get a fresh snow, you're going out there, <coughs> excuse me, and you're actually scouting or freelancing in and you're hunting, you're hunting fresh sign. You know, if you go out there and there's no snow on the ground, uh, a lot of times, you know, you're looking at old sign. You just don't see fresh sign, especially in late season because everything's froze. You're not seeing tracks left in the mud because everything's hard and froze. Uh, another thing, always go try to always go when there either is snow on the ground or possibly once in a blue moon, it, it, it may be, you may have a warm spell come, you know, you, you look and there's a week where everything's going to be above 35 degrees. So you can walk more quietly because when you go on public land and there's no snow on the ground and there's leaves on the ground, I, I actually give up morning hunts on several out-of-state hunts in late season, I did not hunt any mornings because when you're walking on those leaves and usually in the morning on morning entries before daylight, it's dead calm. And a deer can hear you from a quarter mile away walking and crunching on leaves and they can differentiate for the most part, you know, human walking versus deer walking. Yeah. And, and they spoke or they just won't come in the direction where you're going to be. So on many hunts, when there's no snow on the ground, it's just too noisy for morning entries, especially if you're hunting on a, on a tight area where you've got a bedding area that may be 200 yards away or 300 yards away from where they're feeding in some oaks or locust trees with big, long beans. And uh, so, you know, evenings are the only thing that's going to be advantageous where you might get an opportunity because mornings is just too noisy. Um, and then once you get there, you've got, you know, Mature bucks by mid-December, they're back to a bedding to feeding routine. You know, they've mm -hmm. lost a lot of weight during the rut phases and they have to eat. And um, so, you know, I start looking for food. That's one cool thing about snow on the ground. If you're in an area that has oaks or locust trees or even chestnut trees, you know, that's where you're going to find the sign in the snow. You know, if the acorns haven't been consumed. You're going to find a lot of scratches and we're digging for acorns. But one thing that's really cool is locust trees. Locust trees are those trees that have those big, long beans on them. And when there's snow on the ground, that becomes a primary food source. They don't mess with locust beans much until winter because when there's no snow on the ground, they have grasses, vegetation, and acorns are more accessible. They're not buried under snow because they're small. Uh, locust tree, they can just plow the ground under a locust tree and four or five of those big long beans pop up and it's a super easy food source. So I look for locust trees. Um, and that, I don't know. 
that's, that's kind of the primary things to look for. Uh, also, you may want to look for, there are some states, uh, Kentucky, Missouri, um, Illinois, there are some states that have archery-only public lands. So, you know, if you're going to go out of state, and those are all great states, Kansas or Kentucky's a, became a really excellent big buck state. There's a, they kill a lot of big bucks in Kentucky. And up on the northern side of Kentucky and up in the northwest corner of Missouri, there's archery-only public lands. West Virginia has four counties, four yeah. entire counties that are that are archery-only. We're going to go off topic here now since you mentioned that, but uh, have you ever hunted in West Virginia in that area? I never have. I have a very good friend that lives in West Virginia, and he's never hunted there either. But I get emails. Usually I get two or three emails a year from guys that hunt that zone, those zones in West Virginia. And they try, they try to keep them quiet. They don't want you to put it on Facebook because they want to keep it quiet. But I mean, they're killing 150, 60 inch bucks in there. And and I know somebody personally that, that hunts down there and he gets a 160 or 170 every year. Now he's hunting specifically big, mature bucks. And it's that steep old coal country with the, you know, the Ridge and Valley, but it's been like that for years. And, and, um, but it's like, People don't think of Southern West Virginia for big bucks, but man, that's why I asked you if you hunted. We we did one episode on the podcast of that because it is an incredible area. But you know, we could talk all day about this, but I'm gonna uh wrap up with one last question that I have for you. And what I'd like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is what is your favorite or most memorable late season big buck story you have? Is there a hunt that stands out to you and just oh, yeah. tell us about that? I will say this all late season kills stand out to me because late season just throws another wrench into the fire it's very difficult to deal with the weather and the noise and just a lot of things in late season but the cool one of the cool things about late season is you usually have everything to yourself there's very little competition during the late season deer it doesn't take them long after gun season to somewhat calm down once they get back into that bedding to feeding even though there may be a slight little second rod some early dolphins coming into heat um you know they move pretty decent but one thing i have found is they move better this is going to sound really weird in inclement weather they uh-huh. like moving in high winds heavy snows uh, i shot a buck in ohio in 2016 during a blizzard, a hard snowfall dropped six inches in less than two hours. Um, this buck came out of a bedding area, made a scrape along the edge of the tree line, and, and came over right and passed right in front of me. I was in a conifer along the tree line. Um, but my most memorable hunt by far late season was in Illinois, 2008. And uh, I went down there after they had just received eight inches of snow, and I confirmed it with the park ranger. And I went down there and scouted. In 2007, I shot a, a big nine point. And then in 2008, uh-huh. I went back and I scouted and I found a locust tree. And this locust tree was next to this big, tall weed field. These weeds were probably eight to 10 feet tall. Gun season had just ended. So the bucks, the gun hunters had pushed these bucks into these, this big, tall field. And it was, it was 150 acre field. And when I say tall weeds, it was higher than the ceiling on your inner room. 
it was really tall. Deer could walk, you could, and it was so dense, you could physically bump a deer three yards in front of you and you wouldn't know what it was. You'd just hear it run. Um, so I found a locust tree that had a ton of beans underneath it. And I was there within 24 hours of the snow and it was just trashed underneath it. And it was literally 15 yards outside the, that this weed field, you know, outside the perimeter of the weed field. 35 mile an hour winds. It was seven degrees when I left the hotel. I usually stay in a hotel. I don't stay in my minivan because you got uh-huh. a van on so much to keep warm. Um, but it was seven degrees, 35 mile an hour winds. Wind chill was 35, 40 below zero. Um, I had on body warmers all over my body because that was before heated vests. I now wear heated vests instead of a lot of body warmers. And I'm in this tree and this I got my nose right up against the tree because with a saddle, you're facing the tree. On the downwind side of the, the wind, I had my nose against the tree to block it from hitting my face. And it was about five, a half hour before dark. I don't remember the exact time. About half hour yep. before dark. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, why am I sitting here? There's no way I'm going to kill a deer in this weather. There's no way a buck is going to move in this weather. It's just too cold. And then I heard something moving underneath me, or I caught it out of my peripheral vision because it was right there. And I kind of turned my head a little bit, and it was, it's kind of weird because it was a spike of four point and a six point, two, four and a six point. And they walked, they actually walked out of the woods and they didn't go by that locust tree. They went, or they walked out of the weeds, I'm sorry. And then they walked Mm -hmm. by me. And we're just going back into the woods because there was some other locusts a couple hundred yards back into the timber. And then, so now I'm like, okay, because I thought about getting out of the tree and going back to the hotel. So now I'm going to sit till dark. And I watch just at dark, just at the low end of the shooting line. Here comes these three does around the corner of this tall weed field. And they're coming towards the locusts. And right behind them is this big 12 point. I mean, I couldn't count the points when I saw the deer, Yeah, but I killed them. So I know it's one. And they came in and they started feeding on those locust beans 17 yards. I was in an oak 17 yards from this locust tree and I shot that 12 point with a 40 pound bow. I had shoulder surgery, so Matthew's made me a 40 pound bow. And uh, that was my most memorable hunt. And uh, my face, I sent you a picture of that buck. Um, my face was all wind chilled. It was you could tell my cheeks were all red. And that was the first evening. That was my first sit that It was 160 inch twelve one. Wow. I'm public. It, it and that's that that's an incredible story and talking about the the weather and the perseverance and, and everything. And you know, I think that's a good way to wrap up. I mean, basically, you nailed it. I mean, you do your homework, you put your time in, you wait for the ideal scenario. You talk a lot about waiting for snow so you can really get on top of the freshest sign. There's a lot of things you could do. A lot of people just, by this time of the year, they'll hang the bow up, but you could have some really incredible hunting if you put the effort in and they put the time in. So good luck with the rest of your hunting. This, uh, go up. You want to say can something? I throw in one more thing? Yeah, I had a good friend. This is this is for all you know on about there. I had a good friend that hunted in Panther, Panther Creek uh, National. It's in Illinois. It's Southern yep. Illinois, 60,000 acres of public land. Um, and he always went down there in November before the gun season. He was always down there with his phone and three years in a row, he went and he never saw a shooter buck and he never killed a shooter buck. And I said, 
well, then why do you keep doing that? Why don't you go in December? And he said, well, they're killing big bucks here. I he said, there's usually, you know, one or two booners taken, you know, on this public land, you know, before gun season. And I'm like, yeah, well, how many hunters are on 16,000 acres from the opening of both through until gun season? I said, there's probably, you know, a thousand of them, right? At least. Yep, yep. So when you look at the quantity of mature bucks percentage wise against the quantity of hunters, that's a pretty low odds percentage. I said, why don't you try going down there in December after gun season's over, maybe a few days or a week, and then wait for there to be a snow? And he did that. The very first time he did that, he went down there and he actually, there was a park ranger building. And this is kind of what you were talking about, you know, close, being close to a road. Well, nobody ever thought about hunting near, during, you know, when there was no snow on the ground near this park ranger, building, even though it was legal to bow on there. So he found you know, when he was there with the snow, there was a major runway, literally 50 yards behind this park ranger building. That nobody ever hunted during the regular season. He sat up on it and shot a big eight point first feet. And now but he's he waited. Hooked. Yeah, during the late season. Yep. That was that was really cool. <laughs> well, well, there you have it. Well, well, thank you so much. Good luck with your hunting this winter. And for everybody who's listening, don't be afraid to get out and try. You don't get a buck during the rut or in the early season. Make sure you get out because it can be great hunting. We'll see you next time on the Bow Hunting Podcast. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.